Welcome back to another episode of the Science of Sports Recovery podcast. I am so excited to introduce our guest, but you probably already know him. He goes by Dr. Kelly Starrett. He's a coach, a physical therapist, a two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller author, speaker, and co-founder of The Ready State. Kelly's clients include professional athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB. He also works with Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record holding, Olympic lifting, and power athletes, uh, CrossFit Games medalists, ballet dancers, uh, military personnel, and competitive age division athletes. The list goes on and on and on. Kelly is a fierce competitor in his own right. But we're having him on the show today to talk about pain. We'll, we'll talk about how to assess it. We'll talk about the D2R2 method and how to become more durable and, and much more. I can't express how much I've learned in this episode, so I hope you do too. You're listening to the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Each week, we explore how to recover more efficiently from training so you can work out harder and realize your full potential. This is the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Kelly, it's uh, great to have you on the show. I'm, I'm honored uh, for you to be a part of the Science of Sports Recovery uh, team. Oh, oh. <laughs> thank you so much and uh happy new year uh yeah thanks <laughs> what, what an interesting year for uh all of our professional athletes our olympic athletes our college athletes our high school athletes we've just yeah, basically seriously. like good luck doing it on your own i mean it's crazy what i don't know how i would have coped during this time if you had ripped away my world cup if you ripped away my you know even my high school athletics i, I think i would have been, become addicted to drugs or something yeah <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point. I um, just got into the sport of obstacle course racing oh. um, this year, but all Spartan, you know, is canceled and stuff. So I did a little few um, other um, races, but it was really hard to kind of stay motivated for that. But it was interesting because for the first time ever, I didn't, I've, I didn't know this person, but we did a Zoom workout together. Wow because like for that so, community part of it <laughs> i mean you know it's, i think one of the things that we it's easy to forget when we're chasing wattage or time or splits yeah that you know human beings belong to other human beings and the brain cannot work optimally unless it's around other brains it's a social organ mm -hmm. and you know it, it's i think sometimes as we're looking at sort of the the worldview of performance it's the soft sides of communication and tribe and safety, right? And those Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, because we're all always obsessed with sleep and nutrition, some of those things, but yeah. the other things which are hard to quantify really have come up that, you know, being on a team, having training partners, I mean, almost, it's almost more important, you know, yeah. feeling safe and feeling like you have a plan. The yeah. amount of uncertainty this year for some of our professional athlete friends has just been through the roof, you know, yeah. crazy. Yeah. 100%. So, but uh, what I want to talk about today, I mean, you're, you're the expert when it comes to mobility, when it comes to kind of pain management, uh, or identification, what that really means. Uh, so I want to center our conversation kind of around identifying causes of pain and, and what really metrics we should be using. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know you've mentioned multiple times that pain is not a good indicator of you know, inability or inefficiencies and stuff. So we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but I want to know a little bit about the athlete behind the professional. Um, you started in, or, or kind of your main sport was whitewater rafting. And, and how, how well, did that come to bar? Like, how do you find the sport of whitewater rafting? Well, it should be, uh, I grew up kayaking, okay. you know, whitewater kayaking. And then went to, uh, you know, thought I wanted to play football in college discovered I was small and slow when I, when I actually went to college to play football yeah. and then fell in love with whitewater again. I've been kayaking since I was about 12. So, you know, here I'm at 18, um, sort of falling in love with the sport of kayaking again. And I went to school in Boulder and, um, what ended up happening was, uh, I had been teaching kayaking my whole life since I was 14 
And in the summers, we were either river guides or kayak instructors. That's sort of yeah. how we paid our paid college and did all the things we need to do. Yeah. And um, I started racing slalom and whitewater slalom. So you see that every four years in the Olympics where they hang the gates over the river and yeah. I paddled in that sport. So that was cool. sort of like formal racing. But then there was this side thing that was developing in the 90s, which was sort of extreme racing. And there's suddenly there was some money involved. You know, yeah. there wasn't always Red Bull. There wasn't always sort of monster energy drinks. It didn't, I mean, there was maybe Powerball, right? So, yeah. but all of a sudden there are these, these, you know, and people have been hucking and racing for forever. But suddenly there was money to be had for us doing, you know, kind of extreme races or class five races where there yeah. was real consequence and real skill involved. And uh-huh. what we ended up doing is sort of collecting. So we're formal slalom racers, which is very technical, like, like any slalom discipline. And then we have this other side of like, you know, racing head to head in these crazy places. And so we kind of suckered all our national team friends into joining these teams and, at the time, the, the big sponsor of, of these events was Camel Cigarettes, which okay. is just so bad. And, and I see the, the hypocrisy of us taking money from Camel to go race. Yeah. But when you're, when you're a young kid and someone's like, hey, I'll fly you to Chile to race in the World Championships, the Camel Whitewater World Championships, they're like, of course, sign me up. Yeah. You know, you'll fly me to, to go compete. And so we, you know, in Colorado and in California and other places, there started to be this festival and you know the normal expression was big air was starting to happen in skiing you just you could sort of see sort of Stephen Kotler's rise of the superman all of a sudden where you know what we were doing and what was possible was larger and then we all had this formal training background underneath it so it wasn't like we came out of the Yarbrough let's just huck we were very very technical athletes and had trained very hard mm-hmm. and then could go do these other things and that uh you know was sort of how we ended up racing whitewater i paddled slalom on the world cup for the national team and then also racing all these kind of international obscure whitewater races which in europe and in like russia i mean they're just you know it's everywhere in the united states it's a it's a closet sport like standing in a cold shower ripping up 20 dollars bills that's it's popular (laughs) it's a good analogy (laughs) like most sports right you you have to you have to love it you know because uh you know, wealth and glory are, are not going to be parts of the, <laughs> the equation. So, you know, what's yeah. interesting though, I think what's notable is that at the time I became actually very injured as a paddler mm-hmm. and um, I paddled myself right off the team into a, a really bad neck injury, a cervical plexus, yeah. brachial plexus traction injury yep. where I just had overused and had enough musculature that was tight and mechanics and ribs that were stiff and poor breathing. Yeah. I was an asthmatic at the time. So I was using a ton of, you know, my breathing was disrupted because of the kinds of breathing I was doing with this mm-hmm. inhaler. And suddenly my hands started to go tingly and then I get weak and uh, no one could tell me what was going on. And that really that, you know, when I started asking around, everyone's like, yeah, this happens. You just race really hard, break, take a, take a time off, see if we can get a little further next time. And that was honestly sort of the, the mantra of all professional athletics is that we broke a lot of eggs that probably didn't need to be broken in the pursuit of, did you go faster? Then it must be better. Yeah. And uh, chasing the, the watch was one way of coaching. And now we're realizing that, man, we really ha- have an opportunity to actually sort of mine a lot of the, yeah. the positions, the restoration. We just weren't even getting as much out of our bodies and we were having all these problems. Yeah. And, and that situation where you're kind of mis- misdiagnosed or didn't know what was going on with your uh, body there. Is that really what led you to, you know, strength conditioning, um, physiotherapy route? Well, it's interesting. It's a good question. What's interesting is that I came at this first and foremost as an athlete. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, we were obsessed with performance. We all early heart rate monitor adopters, you know, we we were trying to, you know, I was sponsored by metrics nutrition. I mean, this is like, we were trying to do the, the thing, right. And yeah, Um, you know, what's interesting though, is when I start, when I went to sort of had this medical experience with my neck, you know, it was massage and cortisone Mm -hmm. and MRIs and you play the athlete game where you're like, let me throw everything I can at this. Right. Yeah. Because all I was interested in was going back and doing the thing I was doing. Exactly. And I, and I, no one really knew how to undo this except for give it time. And so when I went to physio school, um, you know, I realized that I ultimately strength and conditioning was very interesting to me, human performance and strength and conditioning yeah. is just a component of, of human performance. 
But when I went to physio school, I realized that it was completely different language. It was like I came out of an athletic experience, an Olympic athletic experience, and the language I was learning in physical therapy school was like Esperanto. Like it was like, you know, romantic Spanish from the yeah. you know, turn of the century, you know? And I was like, man, this, is, this doesn't apply. This doesn't forward think. It doesn't predict. It doesn't help me get performance. It's all reaction. Exactly. Once the athlete breaks, then we just see if we can put out the fire and then go back. Yeah. And that, that dis, this junction, even the exercises, the kinds of language, I'm like, it doesn't smell the way athletes are training. The physios aren't out there on the team. They don't know what we're doing. You know, don't put your, like the kind of language I really had this dis dissonance between what I had experienced as a high level athlete and this language of rehab to the point where now I don't even use the word rehab. We train through injuries. We train through surgery. Yeah. Rehab is, man, I'm trying to get you back so that you can occupy your, you know, daily life activities. Yeah. You have a yeah, car like accident or a stroke. That's yeah. what rehab is. That's not the experience of, of most people who are seeking out additional 100%. help. So that's where I really started to freak out a little bit. It was like, holy crap, I think I could have predicted and prevented my neck injury. And why aren't we preventing these other things before? Yeah. And rehab kind of gets gives you the connotation of like taking time off or being easier, waiting waiting for something. Where in my experience, I know in your experience, where when you're hurt, and you're still an athlete, it's way more work because <laughs> yeah, you're doing right. all the stuff if you're doing it right. Uh, and we'll get into that. But well, and uh, what's, what's so interesting is that none of the conversations about, so here I have this neck injury and yeah. no one is talk, asking about my nutrition or my sleep or my breathing or my positions or my mechanics or any yeah. of my recovery or resting heart, like any of the things. Like, I'm like, of course you broke. Like I, we were doing paddling 11 to 13 times a week plus weight sessions, plus additional yeah. bike ride cardio pieces. Like, I mean, the volume was so dumb. We fell into the runner's trap. Oh, I must run a hundred miles a week or 200 miles a week or what, you know, like yeah. otherwise <laughs> not good enough. Like, are, are you serious? A hundred miles a week? Yeah. Oh, there, that the runner's trap runs rampant in um, college athletics and I think in all sports really yeah. more is better. Yeah. More is um, better. But in running there's just like it's so easy to document oh i ran 90 miles this week no i ran 120 oh well, i did 150 you know <laughs> it is easy. It's easy and it's hard it's sometimes you know one of the things that you know we haven't done is we don't we don't create the the bookends for people like this is positional minimums these are recovery minimums it's difficult yeah. to have that language because once people are empowered then i'm like work as hard as you can dude if you want to do some volume, we're gonna do 5k repeats. Let me know how that goes for you. You know, like <laughs> look at Ryan Hall's programming for Sarah and it's awful programming. I mean, he is yeah. just a sadist. And, um, you know, so the idea here is I think, um, you know, what we haven't done a good job of is sort of fencing in and helping people auto-regulate. And then also there's a real opportunity for people to work harder, not work more, which is what we've done. You know, we just were like, oh, just we'll bring the intensity down, add a bunch of junk. So you feel like yeah. you're doing something. And I, I think that's, that's really, and then we, we get into the weeds of tracking and counting yeah. and like people aren't people anymore. They're, you know, automatons yeah. without any, without any joy or love. Yeah. And that, that leads me to uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is uh, this addiction to soreness. Mm. Uh, I think athletes have, where it's like, if I'm not sore, I'm not, I'm not working hard enough. Right. Like, do you think there's uh, something wrong with that? Like, what what are your thoughts to somebody that says, like, I have to be sore in order to know that I got something from the workout? Well, you know, clearly that's misguided, right? That 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 soreness doesn't correlate to improved coordination, motor efficiency, like strength, anything. It just says you've done enough damage that your brain is recognizing this as soreness, right? Yeah. And I can take your legs and honestly shake them. And then suddenly you're not sore. And they're like, oh, my legs aren't sore anymore. I'm like, oh, isn't that weird? Like, <laughs> oh, like I just shook a leg and now suddenly you're not sore. So but what is interesting is that, that I think what's notable about the conversation is that someone came out of a tradition where someone said, this is how you measure progress. And then that experience of feeling sore corresponded with early gains, early progress. Because sure. you, what you'll see is that, um, and this is from Stuart McMillan of Altus, who's the CEO there, head track coach, 
you know, what we see is that when athletes are injured or not making success or not having success, they'll revert to the time or the kinds of training or the things they did when they first had success. Yeah. And I think that early soreness, when we're taking all the easy slack out of the system, it is easy to run five minutes. No, it's not easy to run five minute miles. It's easy to run six minute miles. Yeah. The gains there are quick, but running from a 412 to a 410, ooh, how, how hard is that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I think when you stop making those progress, then you signal and you're like, well, how do I know I'm making progress? And it's difficult for people to quantify, but sure. the subjective feeling of being sore, I think is one of those feelings yeah. that is misguided and is sort of a tail end of the junk that we used to do. Just junk, busy work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you, you have documented like mobility very well you have a virtual course or, or platform where you know people can subscribe to and stuff um, how do you record progress in mobility or injury prevention how do you know if you're getting more um durable as an athlete it's a great question the durable is a really interesting question so if we're looking at, because there's really two questions. So the first one around, how do we know if we're making progress around mobility, right? Mm -hmm. So let me define mobility for you for starters. Yeah. So the first one is, do you have the range of motion that you're supposed to have? Can you express that range of motion with technique? So really it's technique and skill on top of mechanics, right? So you could say yeah. biomechanics or tissues and then motor control, movement control, skill. And the, and the language is range of motion, skill, really. And so, you know, one of the things that gets lost in all this is, you know, for example, athletes hate to stretch, right? They just do. We don't stretch. Yeah. I, you know, I used to tell my coach in high school, I'm pre-stretch coach, like whatever. And <laughs> the problem is I was just, there was no goal. There was no end point. There was not, how do I know when it's enough? Have yep. I made change? How do I know that I'm not limited? You know I mean? Like, why are we doing that? You know, I like exactly. what we haven't done is given people sort of really clear goals goalposts for this is enough range of motion yeah. and this is enough control through that range of motion. Well, it turns out we have a diagnostic language running all the time, which is strength and conditioning. Ultimately, someone should be, a coach should be competent enough and an athlete should be competent enough to identify within the sport what signatures of compensation look like. When the foot starts to turn out when you're running, when you're overstriding, when you're when you're running across your body, when you can't breathe and your neck starts to hinge, those are signature compensations of running. The key is it's difficult for people to accumulate enough experience to identify signatures of compensation, be able to add a stimulus to change the signatures of compensation, right? Yeah. So how do you know when you have enough hip extension as a runner? Well, it's hard to say unless you're an expert at running. But if I take you to the gym, in two seconds, I can find out if you have enough hip extension or enough hip flexion or enough rotation sure. in the hip, right? I can tell if you can flex and extend your thoracic spine very quickly yeah. because in, within the language of strength conditioning, we actually have the bookends of movement. So being able to put your arm over your head with a dumbbell is a normal expression of the shoulder. Being able to do a full push-up is a normal mm -hmm. expression of shoulder extension, which is crucial for running. Right. So if you don't want to run across your body and, and then solve that problem, you're going to have to be able to have that shoulder come into extension. Yeah. So what we what we've done then is not given people clear ends or coaches just yeah. the like, what's the goal? Well, the goal is to restore your normative range. Well, the normative range is very clear, written out by every physician's group, every physical therapy group, every chiropractor group. The shoulder should be able to have this much range of motion. The hip should be able to move this much. The ankle yeah. should move this much. Well, it turns out again, all of those languages of movement, those ranges are built in. This is why a pistol is important that you can be able to do a pistol. I don't care if you can actually do a pistol, care you get into the pistol shape because it means you have normal hip flexion and normal ankle range of motion. Yeah. So the first thing what we're trying to establish there is helping people to understand, let's restore your normative ranges. And yeah. it may be a battle because you're a specialized athlete and we don't ever have to get full range back because it really doesn't matter if you're a runner, if you can put your arms completely over your head, it sh you should be able to do that for the peak expression of the shoulder. But yeah. as a runner, you may not have that. You might be Dean Carnassus who can always do pull-ups, right? But you can, what you'll see is when we give athletes permission to have their normative range, you don't necessarily need to train that range, but you should have the normative range. 
So okay. suddenly everyone is clear about what the goals are and yeah. your specialization may make you asymmetrical. Your specialization may take away certain ranges. Well, that's why we have strength conditioning. So suddenly when we put position, yeah. and position competency and mastery back into the conversation, that's easy. Yeah. The durability question, ooh, that's a different conversation. Yeah. What we can say is, well, we can begin to sort of take a systems approach when we solve these problems. But durability is as much about genetics, it's as much about lifestyle as it is about range of motion and tissue health, right? So yeah. the idea is, well, here's what we can control for. And the system is so complex and so sophisticated and so sensitive. If we play a generalized game, sort of the, the uh, Axios or Team Sky's idea of uh, aggregation by marginal gains, yeah. if we control the, you know, Alan Lim in Boulder is one of my friends, and he has this idea that it's like, it's not these little micro things, it's these big boulders. And if we are sleeping, then, and you're eating whole foods, and you feel loved in a training career, you're a pretty durable, rad athlete, especially when yeah. we start doing best practices. But what we've stripped out of the durability question is, I'm like, well, why are you missing your hip flexion? You're bringing your knee to your chest. That's one of the reasons your hamstrings, you know, keep having problems because you can't use your glutes because you can't extend your hip because the other hip doesn't come into the hip lock position. So all right. of a sudden, what we start to see is there is a relationship between inefficient mechanics, yeah. mechanical compromise, but that is the conversation about performance, not about the conversation of injury prevention. So sure. I never approach someone saying, let's do this because it'll make you safer. We say, let's do this because you'll run faster with more mechanical efficiency. And that is safer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, and I, and I did have a question with, you said like normal range of motion um, for a human being, uh, but then that specializes in, in different sports like what is more important and stuff but like like your example a runner may not be able to put their arm straight above their head i wasn't able to when i got done with college because my shoulders were crap like is that in your opinion important for a runner to have that normal yes. um, range of motion as a human and why the you know when we say it doesn't matter what we're saying is we're back to our reductionist joint muscle approach thinking. We're sure. not thinking of the body as a fascial system. We're not thinking okay. the body as a mechanical synergistic system where what happens up, like if you want to change someone's stride, change their shoulder mechanics and you'll see radical changes in their stride, mm. right? Because, you know, look at their breathing efficiency. So if you're a little bit kyphotic or you're stiff or you're a little bit flexed in the thoracic spine, you can't put your arms over your head. I guarantee you, you're not breathing at your peak efficiency. You're not. Mm -hmm. And then what we'll see is that, you know, economy expressed longer and longer, the longer you go, yeah. head is in front of your body and it's just inefficient. So maybe, or maybe not, that's going to be a, a pain problem. That's the wrong conversation. Again, yeah. we don't do things because we think they'll prevent pain. We do things because we think that there are better expressions of the human physiology. Sure. And so again, should you be able to have normative range of motion? Yes. The reason you didn't is no one said it was important. And no mm -hmm. one showed you, more importantly, that when we improved it or worked on it, how the thing you care about got better. Because yeah. athletes care about their sport and they are religious and diligent about doing the things that make them better at their sport. So everything that we do is geared on, well, what's the most important thing to you? Wattage, great. Then let's use wattage as the proof of the pudding, right? And, you know, oh, I was able to generate more wattage more often, longer. Well, what was it we yeah. were doing again? Because I'm doing that again. And then yeah. we don't have to sell anything, right? Yeah. And I think the problem is, you know, do I care that you can do pull-ups? No. Do I care that you have shoulder range of motion and control in that range of motion? Yes. But suddenly you're like, oh, that's yoga and Pilates. <laughs> and like, all, like you really are like, oh, that's Rolfing and Feldenkrais and yeah. every strength. And what you see is every modern, I mean, if you, if you go to the track, you know, America's a little funny because we're just a little bit newer at this. If you go to the European or Eastern European track athletes, man, they all can Olympic lift. All of them. Even, even the 5K and 10Kers. Yeah. The half marathon, like they are strong and power clean a ton. And so you're like, well, why don't we do that? And because we were so afraid or it wasn't, you know, it was, again, sort of tacked onto this volume. Well, if we aren't doing the sport, then we, we're wasting our time, right? Because yeah. it's easiest to get the gains there. Yeah. Instead of appreciating that, well, how much strength and conditioning do I need? 
I need enough to be able to support your positions or restore your positions. How, mm-hmm. how strong do you need to be to run a four minute mile? I have no idea, but I, I'll say it's not that strong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Relative, <laughs> relative to these other sports. Yeah. But when we look at, uh, when we start making the conversation, not about strength, but about can you hold your positions for four minutes? Oh, that's different. And what mm-hmm. we see is you become more mechanically efficient or more coordinated through strength yeah. training, your mechanics improve. And then we start to see that motor efficiency expressed in that form yeah. of mile. That's the thing you're going to care about. You're gonna like, hey, we got to go to the gym. But the reaction to, you know, we lost our minds about the gym. I mean, people were just spending so much time in the gym and we're like, hey, you actually need to go do your sport and you need yeah. to go practice your sport more. It's easy to measure gains in the gym. It's hard to measure gains in technique of shot putting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> that what you said about the shoulders, like, and the breathing, like that totally hits home for me. Uh, cause you don't know this, but my story in college, I ran a four ten mile as a sophomore. Um, uh, and then I, I started having troubles. I couldn't finish and they were trying to diagnose me with ever anything. You know, I couldn't do a push up like without my shoulders hurting and uh, totally range of lack range of motion. I knew that all along. Nobody cared to look at that. That's right. But I was no one's, no one's job, no one's responsibility. Exactly. And I was, I was getting like 1500 meters into the race and just collapsing on the track, not having a, a kick and stuff. And it, eventually they gave me, uh, like an inhaler for sports induced asthma, uh, and said like, this will probably help you. And it, it did, um, yeah. whether it be, by the way, always helps everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a controlled substance, you know, whether, uh, mentally or, you know, whatever. So I was able to get close back to where I was, but I, I never, um, I never did back to the 410 stuff, but it was interesting that you say that. Cause thing, that's the thing that drives me crazy. How many athletes like you did we lose or mm-hmm. not see your potential? Look, I don't know if you're going to be a three, what's the world record? 348, right? 43, I think 43. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's so fast. Yeah. Just so everyone knows. I went to high school in the eighth grade in Germany at this American school, okay. national school, and I ran cross country. It was the only sport they let me do as an eighth grader. And in the eighth grade, I weighed 180 pounds and was the biggest kid and the slowest kid on the team. So I ran cross country and was the DFL in every <laughs> race. And I think I beat like, there'd be a kid out there with crutches who'd like try to race and I beat that kid and like yeah. the celebration. So I really appreciate how fast that is, you know? And I think I r- ran a 558 mile one time and like, I was like, I retired, you know? So, yeah. you know, the, you know, what's interesting is that no one, it's hard to look at mechanics because we say we, we give lip service to mechanics, but once again, we haven't made the language yeah. of efficiency and, and appreciating that. Yeah you know, being stiff or not having access to your diaphragm suddenly changes your breathing. So now you're only mouth breathing, right? Yeah. I mean, Kipchoge ran sub two, breathing through his nose the entire time. What the hell is that about? Like that <laughs> is freakish, right? I mean, yeah. you br- nose only breathing the entire time. So when we start to look at the patency, the uh, flexibility, not that patency is not the right word, that's open, but we're looking at the compliance of the chest wall. How flexible is the chest yeah. wall? That's expensive to breathe into a stiff chest wall. And what we suddenly see is, oh, the mechanics of diaphragm efficiency, the re- if you're stiff and you're in flex position or you're in overextended position, yeah. we suddenly start to take the diaphragm and start to challenge it a little bit. And now I've just taken some of your diaphragm function off the table, right? Sure. And what we know is that the diaphragm accounts for like a huge amount of blood in high aerobic activities, like a freakish amount of blood. And inefficiency in that system, when the diaphragm fatigues or it's out of position or mechanically inefficient because you're overextended or flexed, it shuts your legs down because your brain is so smart to say, oh, look, you can't breathe. You're over breathing. (laughs) We'll just make the legs go slower. And it's it's our inability to appreciate these things as systems and to appreciate the economy of the systems, especially as we come out of traditions that don't necessarily have appreciated or whose responsibility is it? When is the athlete going to do it? How do we prioritize it? And that's really the question because what we end up seeing is traditionally those things have encroached on training times and they shouldn't encroach on training times. They should be part of the gym experience, part of the the auto regulation. Because if someone had shown you quickly how to open up your chest wall, mobilize your diaphragm, 
and then all of a sudden you're breathing better, I would never have to have you do that again. You would do it one time and the hook would be set and you would have gone sub four, yeah. you know? I mean, and that is the, what drives me crazy about this conversation, I think, is that we've lost the narrative. It's all in your brain. Bullshit. Your brain body are a system and, you're, mm. and, and it's so cleverly connected in nuanced ways, it's difficult to appreciate. That's why we have to say, this is what we're doing. We're measuring this. We're checking this. And it's a constant evolution. If I assess you at the beginning of the season, how do you look at the end of the season? Like you're a whole different person. So yeah. that's why I need the diagnostic tool every day. And the problem is, you know, oftentimes, like if I just use your wattage or output or times or splits, I can be like, wow, you suck today. You're like, yeah, well, I had a couple of drinks last night and smashed a pizza and I got in a fight with my girlfriend and I didn't sleep. And I'm like, oh, one-to-one, like yeah. <laughs> I can tell inputs and outputs, but the motor efficiency, it's hard for us to see those inputs and outputs. If yeah. you're overstriding because you don't have enough hip extension and now you're having to swing around your body and make yeah. that up on the front, it's, you can get away with that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Until you lose or until some tissue finally, your brain finally says, we're well, not doing this anymore, or you have a catastrophic tissue failure, right? And, and it's more difficult for us to appreciate those tight connections. That's why I want pain to be just another piece of information like wattage yeah. or output. Yeah. It's not tissue tra- trauma. It's your brain saying, hey, I need you to pay attention to this. Hey athletes and coaches, quick note before Kelly gets into how to diagnose pain. We mentioned Kelly's virtual coaching program several times in this episode and I have to tell you, as athletes you have to invest in yourself to reach your full potential. I mean, LeBron James spends over a million dollars on his body every year. Now that might be an extreme example, but it goes to show that the top athletes are investing in themselves. Now, I know we're not all made of money and we can't invest a million dollars into massages and and all that kind of stuff like LeBron James does. And that's why Kelly created his virtual mobility coaching program. For $15 a month, you can have Kelly in your pocket wherever you go with mobility assessments, exercise demonstrations, and the virtual mobility coach will be key to keeping you competing longer and harder. Check it out by going to thereadystate.com slash Jace. That's the Ready State, Ready spelled R-E-A-D-Y, and Jace spelled J-A-S-E. We'll have links in the show notes as well, so you can go there. Again, thereadystate.com slash Jace. All right, back to diagnosing pain with Kelly Starrett. Sure, sure. So what, when we have pain, what are some ways that we can understand like what our brain is trying to say about that? Cause I think there's, you know, there's kind of a fight between maybe the athletic trainer and the athlete in some schools or some programs where they're like the athletes, like, no, I'm keeping going. And the athletic trainer is like, no, this takes four to six weeks to heal. You know? <laughs> well, uh, what's interesting so- is if we, first of all, we just, we start off with the assumption that the resting state of the human being is pain-free. That's crucial to understand. That's the resting state. And that if I actually dropped into your body at the last turn of the, the mile, I would have died of the pain, the agony, the suffering. So you can't tell me that it's not painful. It's a different kind of pain. Yep. And, and what we want people to appreciate is that your pain is always there. If I ask a room full of hundred athletes, how many of you are pain-free? No one raises their hand, like two people. And one of them is like 12 and wrapped in bubble tape, right? Yeah. <laughs> the rest of us, you know, what we see is that pain is actually a normal, a really normative experience. Okay. And what we've told people is that pain is a medical condition. Mm. And so what we do is we ignore painful situations. We, we self-medicate through ibuprofen or Tylenol or THC or alcohol or whatever it is that you're using to cope, right? We're, that's how we've told athletes to manage it by telling them not to manage it. Go solve this yourself. And then athletes do. What we've said is, well, pain is not the domain of the coach or the athlete. Pain is a medical problem. So we wait until we're in so much pain that we can no longer occupy our role in society, occupy our role in the team, occupy our role sort of in, in pleasure. And that's mm-hmm. really where we want to begin to define this line of what we think is injury. I can no longer run. I'm injured. I run with pain. 
welcome to the game because most of us are running with some kind of pain. Why? Because yeah. we complete, we have histories, we have incomplete recovery practices because we train like maniacs We're because mm. we're humans, right? We're, we're not perfect. Yeah. What we're trying to do is shift this whole narrative about who owns it. And when someone has pain, what our friend Perry Nicholson says, his, his company is called Stop Chasing Pain. He has the most elegant way of describing it. It's a request for change. So when you suddenly realize that something is hurting, and look, and if you've ever done, like I've ran one ultra marathon, and the number of cases of diseases I caught during that one experience, like I was like, oh, I must have knee cancer. Oh, this is rabies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my psoas has meningitis. Like the number of things that happened, my body trying to like yeah. get out. Like I was like, oh my, I've ruptured both my Achilles. Like my friend's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm dying, you know? And, yeah. and so, you know, the key is that your brain is super clever about trying to protect you. But when you start to clue in and use as a diagnostic tool and realizing that we can turn it up and turn it down with sleep, we can turn up and turn down with your sensitivity, mm-hmm. with, with stress, we can turn up and turn down with nutrition. So we have a lot of agency around the sensitization of that, right? Because some okay. people are like, you're so damn durable, right? You never, ever hurt. So what we want to understand is, well, what are the best practices? Well, it turns out those are the best practices to be a healthy, happy human. And like, if you want to be pain-free as a man, for example, I'm a, I'm a, a cis male, right? Beautiful women run by who are super jocks. I don't feel any pain. I, in that moment, I'm like, shing, like I don't feel anything, <laughs> right? And what's yeah. interesting is that if I get into a fight with my wife or I'm super stressed, man, I'll be like, oh, maybe my hip hurts and what's going mm-hmm. on. So there's a direct correlation. But when someone has pain, what we want to appreciate is our, we use, I, I coined something to try to organize this called the D2R2 model. Okay. And D2, the first D2, the first D is desensitize. And oftentimes, if you hit something with a lacrosse ball or a foam roller or a little scraping or a percussion gun like a hypervolt, you've just changed how your brain is perceiving what's going on at the tissue level. Okay. Because you're, none of your tissues themselves actually generate pain. It's how your brain perceives that information and decides whether it's pain or not. Mm-hmm. This is why some people who are just, they just don't get the message. Or the brain's like, not a threat. I've, I've had worse. We'll, we'll not even notice that. Yeah. And some people are like, ah, I'm dying. I'm like, dude, we're just doing the warm up. Like, chill out for a second. <laughs> right? But both of those signals are real. That yeah. person's brain is perceiving that as threat. So when something hurts sometimes, it's easy for us to just desensitize that and get out of pain. And that's why we teach downregulation through breathing and soft tissue work. And we give our athletes blood flow restriction and scraping and cupping. These are all ways that an athlete can help desensitize herself, right? Control. The second piece that D then is decongestion. And that means that, Hey, how do we circulate lymph? How do we remove fluids? Because if a tissue is congested, the chances of being more painful are, are higher. And again, your experience with pain, your parents' beliefs about pain, all of those things, the the crew that you ran with, everyone's like, well, we're we're in pain now. And you just block it out. And Mm -hmm. I have friends who have had, I've been in knee surgeries with them. Their knees look like garbage dumps. I mean, like garbage dumps. There's boulders in there. It's on fire. The surface is destroyed, no meniscus. And they have zero knee pain, which always tells me, man, if you can take the tissues and destroy them and degrade them to this place and someone has no knee pain, and I can have someone with perfect tissues and has knee pain. I'm like, mm, yeah. that's all about the brain. But yeah. it doesn't mean that it's not real. And that doesn't mean that you can't, don't have any control of it. So just telling someone it's in their head, man, you're just an ass for doing that. Yeah. So when I hand you, here's five different tools. Let's see if we can desensitize you. And you're, suddenly you're like, oh, I feel great. Let's go run. Boom. Decongesting. Hey, if that tissue is, let's say you went for a big run and then sat down at a desk. Classic. Or you're a student, yeah. right? Right, that is the worst thing you can do. We're training at these post-maximal loads, and then what we're not doing is walking ten to fifteen thousand steps during a day to trying to decongest those tissues. Mm-hmm. So, like on a regular day, your lymphatic system is moving three liters of lymph through the body. Yeah. Your lymphatic system is the sewage system of the body. Yep. So, if you've ever like done a big race, jumped on an airplane or a bus with a team. And then you get to the end and your ankles are all puffy. Welcome to, de- to congestion town. Yeah. Right? That, that's a failure of, of not having muscle contraction. Yeah. Dump the lymphatics. 
And quick, quick note before you go on, if you're listening and you're like, what's the lymphatic system? Uh, I did a deeper dive with Gary Reinel in oh, yeah. uh, episode Perfect. 11. Um, so just go back and, and, and listen to those and then come Please back Please listen here. to that. Because what we often see is that not only are congested tissues sometimes more painful than non-congested tissues, right? But what we see is that congested tissues don't handle load or force as well. So what I'm telling you is that you should manage this congestion and it's a normal byproduct of athletics experience. This is why we want you to yeah. down. This is why we want you to go for a walk in the evening after a big, right. Or jump in the pool or, or play a game, but don't sit like sitting, like running and sitting on the couch is why horses die after they run <laughs> Pull down horses more than most athletes pull down. Yeah. So the next one then is, is reperfuse because oftentimes what we see is that t- irritable tissues aren't getting a lot of blood flow. And that might be because fascia is restricted or, or previous history of tissue or, or um, for whatever reason, the, the tissues aren't getting the blood and the hydration they need. This is why like blood flow restriction is an amazing technique to blow out, open up all your vasculature, hyperperfuse, get blood back into the tissues that we're after. And then oftentimes, I've given my athletes some steps to do those three things. Nothing hurts. We've solved their pain problem. We've just stomped it out. Yeah. And then the last R in there is restore, which is restore your range of motion. So okay. when someone comes to me with pain, the first thing I say to them is, let's fix your hip internal rotation. Like that's a component to it. But the first thing I want to do is get you out of pain, get the tissues back on so that your brain stops thinking this is a threat. Sure. And then we can restore your range of motion, which is the thing we needed to do before you had pain, which is restore yeah. your hip range of motion. So what we want, want people to appreciate here is, again, pain doesn't mean tissue trauma. When should I be worried about pain? When I have any red flag questions, night sweats, dizziness, fever, vomiting, nausea. This doesn't sound like soreness. This sounds like Lyme disease, or I've got the flu, or mm-hmm. something's going on. I've got an infection. It's easy to see those things, right? Yeah. That's a medical problem. Catastrophe. You're going to turn your ankle in a race. You may stress out your ankle ligaments sometimes, the soft tissues. Yeah. That's going to happen. Welcome to being an athlete. So clear mechanisms of trauma, pathology, those things, plus, hey, I've gotten pain so bad I can't occupy my role. Those are all reasons to see the trainer. The rest of this is on us. And what we're trying to do, again, is just change this narrative about who owns mm-hmm. what. And what we do is we see is that joints and tissues that have more normative range of motion that are healthy in excursion, right? Yeah. And that means we have to talk about sleep and we have to talk about mobility and we have to do all these other things. Then what we see is we have an athlete who can handle more volume and at a lesser session cost. And session costs for me is one of the big things that I, I'm really obsessed with. If you and I go both do the same workout and I'm brutally sore the next day and you can train again, my session cost was much higher. So I want to be able to adapt to that stimulus yeah. more effectively than my competitors. Cause everyone's exactly. who's, who's like, there's some secret Russian out there doing more volume than you No, no <laughs> one is outworking each other. It's about now we're realizing how well we can manage our genetics and our adaptation responses. Mm-hmm. And then who's got the most clever programming to get us there with the right. Who can do the most work and be the freshest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like taking, you know, after you work out, your muscles are more damaged than when you started. So like you're taking a step back to go forward, but how much forward can you go from that little step back? If everybody's taking the same step back, who has a longer step forward? And the, even the language of damage, let's say that that is the stimulus for adaptation, right? So we suddenly see that soreness or that the microtrauma. And again, some of us may not even register that but what I would notice is that my, my times were slower the next day or I couldn't put out the same wattage, mm-hmm. right? I burnt my end plates or whatever the mechanism is for why I, you know, my CNS is limiting my ability to generate yeah. force. And I predict, again, complicated conversations. What's not complicated is what behaviors that I can give someone to do yeah. allows them to work harder, longer. That's really an interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the D2 R2, just to uh, recap for the listeners, desensitize, uh, decongest, reperfuse and restore. That's it. A range of motion. And then suddenly you're like, okay, so if, if someone has some weird contraption, you're like, well, which one of those things is it working on? Right. And does it work? Yeah. Yes or no. Is it better? Same worse. 
is it observable, measurable, repeatable? Does it yeah. explain phenomena and predict phenomena? Suddenly you're like, oh, these are good models. But suddenly what you realize is then you're just examining tools and you don't have to be dogmatic about, you know, yeah. or create some religion around your tool. It's just a tool that is doing one of those things. And again, when we begin to sort of peel back the layers and help people feel better and move better and then yeah. control, shift the loci of control back, man, that's really powerful because, you know, Let's say that you, you had a bad knee sprain in, or ankle sprain in high school. Then you go to college and you're running really well, but it affects the tissues aren't perfect again. They're trying to normalize, but we've changed. You've already had some trauma. Yeah. But being able to manage things when they pop up, being having a set of tools means that you never ever start to have to go around it or hide it. And in fact, we don't, you know, there are a lot of sports experiences and traditions where people athletes hide notoriously hide their pain and hide their dysfunctions yeah won't make the roster because the coach will start to view them as not 100%. an team and so what we see is this wholly messed up system where athletes aren't being able to talk about what's going on in their bodies yeah women stop getting their periods for months and months and then the, athlete, the trainer's like well do you get your period i stopped three months ago what you know like i, I didn't want to tell you because you thought i weighed too much and i've been you know, like you can see how that really we're not having an honest conversation yeah. back and forth about the needs and the experience of the athlete. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me how sometimes athletes can be really good at their sport, but unhealthy as oh. a human. And, and you can do that for a while. And yeah. I guarantee you, you will not, you, you can't run that way forever. You can't, you know, yeah. my, my daughter was just watching, um, analogy she was just watching uh one of the survivors an old survivor series and it was like villain, villains versus heroes okay know? and i was like georgia how do you problematic do you think it is if you already get the that you are a person on this thing trying to compete but you've already been labeled a villain like what does that change she's like oh yeah that's a problem right up i'm like yeah imagine that on the team you get this label or you start to perceive but then yeah. how the villains lived was terrible yeah. backstabbing awful not sharing resources and then the heroes were all collaborative and they were on a team and they were vulnerable and they got, they had better success. Yeah. And I was like, seems to me as an analogy, you can live as a villain, but it's a really crappy way to live and be. And it's much yeah. better than a hero. And, and you know, that, with your body. that analogy, I think is really what we're trying to do is, is get people yeah. to, and, and, you know, where do we have that conversation? For me, the strength, this, the strength conditioning, the human performance, yeah. person the gym is the safe place to have these conversations about mechanics sure. right we can solve a lot of things without the evil eye of the head track coach or the head you know coach running it's our it's our only safe place in the entire system to be able to talk about the things that are yeah. going on because we have time to do it you know sure sure yeah so you suggest um having somebody other than the um person in charge of how fast you run or or you know how you perform to really talk with the athlete okay where is your range of motion in this what are your um you know training uh, effects you're having whether that be night sweats whether that be you know stress anxiety those kinds of things and have that outside of your kind of head coach conversation if the head coach isn't ready to have those conversations sure. because she is managing a whole bunch of other things right then we then we have to create that system yeah but ultimately we're still describing an old patriarchal model where the head coach is the boss and they tell the athlete what to do. Sure. That, do you think that's what happened with Usain Bolt? That's not how Usain Bolt coached, <laughs> right? He's like, this is what I need. It's a, yeah. it's a dialogue between coach and athlete. Yeah. Ultimately what we've seen is we've disempowered the athlete. The athlete becomes dependent mm. on the coach, can't think for herself or himself, doesn't yeah. know how to manage and isn't managing these things. Yeah. So ultimately I want the athlete you know, a good example is I, I work with the All Blacks. Okay. And by the end of the week preparation, the coaches are really pulled back because the, the team needs to lead itself. It needs to know what's going on on the field and the court, mm -hmm. right? Tennis is a good example where, you know, coaches and athletes can't talk during the tennis matches, theoretically. I mean, it's a little bit happening in COVID, but, you know, they, they can't get any coaching during, during the match. The yeah. athlete has to be an autonomous unit. And what we're trying to get to is actually saying that when we shift the autonomy and low side of control back to the athlete, it's actually a better relationship and dynamic, but it means that we have to start earlier. The athlete has to take on a whole lot more yeah. responsibility and ownership of the entire process. So ideally 
the athletes, athlete boards are having this tightly coupled interaction, conversation, communication thing. It's not my coach doesn't know anything about me. I hide all my dysfunction. I try to show up and please the coach. The coach puts me in. That is a weird power struggle that does not make it's it's a villain versus a hero your tribe. That's what it is, yeah. right? Yeah. And what no, you'll see yeah, is the best teams in the world, man, they are teams. They're squads, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we got a, a few minutes here and what I like to do, uh, for the community that's closest to the science of sports recovery. Um, uh, if you go to our website, you can sign up and, and get access to, um, some of these direct questions that, um, our, our community has. So what happens is I say, Hey, I'm going to have Kelly Starrett on a podcast. Like what questions do you have for him? Oh um, so we have some questions that are very specific to certain people, um, but I'm sure they're going to help more people. Uh, these are just meant for you, like, you know, quicker answers. You don't need to expound too much, um, but we'll get into them here. So first one is, have you ever seen like a, a sports hernia? And I actually know this person. So the, the story, um, they've had a, a pain in their stomach area. They thought it was organs, that mm. kind of stuff. Finally got diagnosed um, as a sports hernia. Um, so how would you go about treating a sports hernia Um as it's not requiring surgery uh, at this point. Not great. Don't need surgery. Get out of here. Good luck, kid. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're like, dude, it hurts, yeah. the, hurts the twist. I don't really notice how much twisting goes on every time you take a step at high speed. Yeah. Right? It's a lot. So the key is when we think about hernias, especially like a sports hernia, not a mm -hmm. classic like inguinal hernia where you have a hole or tear in the wall of the yep. abdominal wall, is oftentimes these sports hernias and it's not hernia isn't really a great phrase. It's an irritation of a tissue that is like an insertion tissue. Sure. So uh, tendon onto bone irritation is called an um, apophysitis, right? Okay. So you, like if you had quad, if your quad ligament was irritated on your patella or irritated on your on your tibia, that's that irritation is called an apophysitis, right? Okay. So oftentimes what we have here is a soft tissue strain of connections of these fascial connections or muscles come in. Now, when we step back and say, okay, let's look at your abdominals, obliques, the whole trunk system mm -hmm. as a fascial muscular system. Okay. Okay. Now let's look at your quads and calves. How much time have you spent on your hamstrings, quads and calves? They're like every day I take care of them. I'm like, how much time have you spent on your abs and rectus and obliques? And they're like, never. And I'm like, okay. So we're treating this muscular stabilization, anti-rotation power driving system. Yeah. Like it's like, it's not, doesn't obey the basic rules of the road, mm -hmm. which are, Hey, stiffness matters. Pliability matters range. Right. So one of the things that we can do obviously is, Hey, what happens? We're, what's going on upstream of that system. But when we get people laying on a simple ball, like a deflated soccer ball or a princess ball, you buy at CVS, right? The drugstore yeah. and then try to breathe in there. They are crippled with pain there. And what I'm something like, I'm like, Welcome to oblique town. Those are just your <laughs> oblique. You're not smashing your kidneys. You're yeah. just that messed up. If I pushed on your quads and you're like, ow, 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 I'd be like, dude, what's wrong with your quads? Like, but if I push on your obliques and you freak out, it tells me I have a system that probably has had so much training and so much use. It's yeah. just become a, a downregulated system. And a system that is overly stiff sure. is not going to translate or absorb force as well. Welcome okay. to the apophysitis. So what yeah. we often see is, and we start around the trunk when any, we have any trunk problems, we default back to basic breathing. Mm -hmm. And so we do some Wim Hof style breathing where we really exaggerate motion in the trunk through big breath. And if you actually go to our website at the ready state, uh, we have a blog, uh, the TRS blog, ready state blog, but I have something in there called my morning routine. And okay. I have a breathing and a hip opener drill, just a quick, it's a drill that I try to get my athletes to do before they leave for formal practice. So in the morning, here's a little breathing spin up, which gets your rib cage moving, which gets your abdominals moving, mm -hmm. which restores range of motion and, and compliance in the abdominal wall. Yeah. Then I'm like, well, let's put a ball in there, do some lay on a roller, do some breathing. What you'll see is those tissues are brutal stiff. So when we improve and restore the range of motion, oftentimes that's enough to desensitize that painful area, right? We've sure. changed yep. the pull some aspects of the brain's thinking differently about it and suddenly that thing isn't painful anymore and we restored that motion of the trunk cool 
Cool. Um, and I'll have a link to that blog um, in the show notes. And then I'm, I'm glad you're not pregnant, right? I mean, that's, you know, yeah, <laughs> clear it up, right? You don't have a third kidney. And that's, that's great. Yeah. And I want people to hear that, you know, sometimes it's never a wrong call to go check in with a professional if you think something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like our athletes have some of the best intuition out there. And so going and getting it checked out is a great call. But once you get a negative thing, what people say is great. What now? I don't know what to do. Instead, we should say, well, I've ruled off the bad stuff. That means it's the easy stuff. That's great. Yeah. Right? That, that's what we want. Like, oh, we don't have an actual tear. Fantastic. That means we can just go after it like stiff hamstring. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And then um, I, I would assume like on your virtual mobility coach um, that you have, uh, for yes. anybody that doesn't know what that is, uh, you can basically, it's a, it's an online subscription. It's really cool. You go and you click what's hurting and he gives you a bunch of uh, videos to like, okay, this is how you decongest, mobilize and all that. So uh, and definitely I'll say that we have a new app out. coming out in the new year that is, makes it even easier. And we have a movement assessment as part of the app. Which oh, awesome. will blow doors. Cause that's what we want. I, I want to shift yeah. everything closer to the experience of the athlete. And so even if you're not an expert, you've never had pain, this is a great way for you to come in and say, Hey, how do I downregulate or take care of my tissues or what's the best way? The VMC yeah. is such an easy, the virtual mobility coach is an easy way to get in there. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I love it. So thank you for doing that. Um, Next question. Um, again, this one's pretty specific too. type two slap tear, um, of the bicep, um, rehab approach after post-surgery. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? If any, I don't, I don't know if that's getting out of the realm of your scope. Um, but just, well, you know, first of all, great that you've had surgery got fixed. That's, that's great. Cause you know, I'm assuming, you know, because we're seeing a generation of athletes who are really getting clever about taking care of their bodies mm-hmm. and they're scratching everything off the list. And when the last thing off the list is I have mechanical trauma that I can't buffer anymore, then yeah. you go get it fixed. That happens. And that, and, and it's going to happen sometimes. So the key here, I think understanding this is ultimately there's just two things I want people to understand when you hear post-surgery. One is that there's no such thing as a fast healer, either heal at the rate a human being can heal or you're slower than that. So, how are you decongesting the tissues every day? How are you getting blood flow in there? If you've been in a sling or you're not able to move, well, suddenly go back to that conversation you had with Gary Reinald and you'll see, mm-hmm. like, for example, I had, um, I'll come back and finish this answer, but I had my knee resurfaced 10 weeks ago because okay. seven years ago I was skiing and I had a bad crash and I had some significant trauma to my knee. Yep that I couldn't buffer anymore with motion and et cetera, et cetera. And I was starting to, it was starting to cost me positions and, and output and wattage. Right. So I got it fixed. But since then I have put on this NMES device, which is a neuromuscular e-stim device mm-hmm. that, that causes the muscles to pump. And what that means is causes the muscles to decongest the tissues. Right. So the muscle pump is yeah. what's driving the lymphatic, but I've gone over 410 hours of decongestion on the unit I have 400 hours. Wow. That's riding on a stationary bike for 400 hours. That's swimming easily for 400 hours. But if you're protecting the tissues, what are your mechanisms? Well, you can't keep up with how much decongestion I've had in blood flow because yeah. I've gone 400 hours of that thing. So suddenly we realize, okay, there are some technologies that we can use to do mm-hmm. what decongest to reperfuse, yeah. right? And then what you're going to see is restoring that range. And control through that range is the next conversation. As you come out of your healing times, those things take six to eight weeks to really heal up and 12 weeks really to mature. That's when the maturation phase starts to end. But, you know, what we're starting to see is, hey, how do I begin to systematically load that in the positions that the shoulder needs to be in? So what you're suddenly seeing again is, wow, I'm going to have to put my arm over my head. Shoulders yeah. going to have to behind. I'm going to have to internal rotate. I'm going to have to be competent with my hand out in front of me. And those are the, what we call our archetypal shapes. Sure. There are root shapes for all the movements that we see. Okay. What you'll see in those root shapes is the language of strength conditioning, push-ups, yeah. pull-ups, you know, dips, right? Plank, all of yeah. those things, muscle snatches, all of those things are the things we need to do to restore that shoulder to sure. its normal range in, in spite of what's happened. And ultimately I would love to get to the bottom of 
why did that biceps tear in the first place? That, that's yeah. an interesting conversation. One we can yeah. never answer fully, but we may be able to make a hypothesis for this individual yeah. that gets us along of not doing it again, right? Yeah. So if they could go through that, you know, assessment where they're inefficient. Hey, I, I don't have any interrotation. So yeah. my shoulder is <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you're, you're cutting out a little bit. Right? Oh. Uh-oh. Okay, now, now you're... Back. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. And then you said you mentioned quickly N M E S a neuromuscular electrical system or something that, yeah. that would be like the Mark yep. pro, uh, or that's something exactly like that. Like the Mark pro. Okay. That's exactly right. It's a Mark pro style device, you know, and, okay. and what, what I want everyone to appreciate is that the things we're talking about here on our, are on a continuum mm -hmm. that if my athletes get injured or have trauma, they know how to restore the range of motion and to decongest because it's the same set of tools and language we've used for performance, right? Yeah. So what you're seeing is we can use the other side. If I'm using this NMES device to decongest the tissue I can't move, right, through muscle contraction mm -hmm. and pumping because I have to protect the range of motion, well, it turns out that's a good way to recover my quads after brutal sessions, which means I can actually program even harder more volume workouts for my athletes because they can super compensate on the other side because we have technology. And that's why we have yeah. Normatec boots. And that's why we use compression and power dot and Mark yeah. pro. And you're less like, okay. Yeah. And it's to the place now with some of these things where if our athletes don't have access to these techniques and tools, they can't keep up with the volume we want to program. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And, um, quickly just, somebody thinking they they go to mark pro and they're like okay it's this electric stimulus uh but it's different than say something like this that you might have at home that's like you know a 50 dollars walmart um yeah. tens unit um could you just quickly speak to like what is the difference so then somebody's not like oh i can get this for 69 yeah. bucks and not realize what they're doing yeah, so TENS, um, transcutaneous electrical stem, um, is a, basically using a light electrical stimulation to have the brain not perceive what's happening at that level. So we can give, because like, if you've ever banged your hand and you shake your hand, that's what TENS is doing. It's the handshake. It's sure. the rubbing. It basically, okay. it's, it uses the pain gate theory that you're, you know, you pain and perception are, are fighting for the same tracks mm -hmm. in the, on the way to the brain. And so if you change the perception of what's going on, you can't hear. It's why they use the buzzy bees, which is a little device that buzzes when they give kids injections because sure. the skin is vibrating. The kid can't feel the injection going in. Right. It's why you might pinch yourself before you give yourself a shot, for example. Yeah. So that tens is superficial and is, is helping with change, giving you some relief from pain. Right. Yeah. The, NMES device is trying to decongest through muscle contraction. Yeah. And it's that's working with driving, the lymphatic system. That's right. And that's a completely different way. And so very, very different mechanisms there. Yeah. And the base NMES device, not the high frequency for pain modulation of that, those things really do an amazing job at, mm -hmm. at, at getting the muscles to squeeze the lymphatics. And that is the game, yeah. right? To circulate through the body because circulation and lymphatic removal. I mean, this is the heart of healthy tissues. Mm -hmm. This is why we recommend people have an aerobic practice and they do all these things and they breathe hard, right? And some, sometimes we fail to appreciate how important those base processes are. And what that means is that you're gonna heal slower than someone who's pump, getting the garbage yeah. out, bringing the groceries in. And for mm -hmm. me, you know, I want my athletes back as fast as we can, which yeah. means you're now healing at the rate of humans or you're healing 100%. less than the rate of humans. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time here. So we're going to, um, I had a few others, but we'll, we'll close up. Um, and maybe we'll just have you have, have you back in six to eight months or, or what have you. Super nice um, to talk about these things. I, this is all we think about and, uh, and work on. And it's, you know, really interesting when we see, cause what we're engaged in right now with conversations like this is a little bit of a revolution, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a dangerous idea because we're trying to empower people to actually have control and have the tools to make themselves feel better and improve their performance. And that is a whole yeah. paradigm shift. Yeah. Um, and not to go too down that rabbit hole, but I think the whole healthcare system is built on this fact of 
you're broken now let's fix you but let's not try to help you not get broken again um well, but what, what i'll say is when people have that experience it comes from somewhere and I'll also just add that you know the system isn't incentivized for performance or full mm -hmm. so if, if the system was incentivized a different way you're incentivized as a physical therapist to get you out of pain so once you're out of pain i stop being reimbursed you know am i gonna That's, get reimbursement yeah. for because suddenly i'm in training this is why it's so important that we look at where we can do these things because you go in for shoulder pain as soon as you're out of pain you're out of there yeah right no one's looking at how what happens in your bench press technique <laughs> I mean, the system isn't set up for that right there's not enough yeah. time that no one's getting paid for that so that means it's a different conversation so i think sometimes we need to think differently about why and how we're using our medical system and mm -hmm. for trauma and pathology it's great and for wellness and performance it's it's dog turd yeah yeah Cool. All right. Well, if uh, you if you need more Kelly in your life, um, <laughs> you need to check out his online um, platform, thereadystate.com. Uh, otherwise, you can find him on Instagram at thereadystate, I believe, and um, check out his virtual mobility coach uh, that will have a app here uh, coming 2021, maybe by the time this is released. Um, Kelly, is there uh, anything else you want to add to where people should find you, get more information? No, that's, that's it. You know, you can see how we're thinking and how we solve these problems. You know, I've been making content on the internet for over 10 years. Yeah. Our first YouTube video is over 10 years old. So, you know, we try to be as transparent as we can. And our model, uh, you know, around empowering self-empowerment of athletes and performance and just even moms and dads and, you know, brothers and sisters is, is starting to catch. We're starting to see that people are becoming very sophisticated about this. And what I'm really excited to see is how much further and faster we can go. That's really the only question I care about. Awesome. And, uh, it, the virtual mobility coach, it does work. I actually, I had knee pain, uh, when I was running and, um, logged in there, you know, clicked on my knee and went through some exercises and, uh, you know, imagine that I was able to run through kind of what may have taken me out if I just, you know, let it ride. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm, oh, I'm, love it. I'm healed now. I'm, I'm good running without pain again. Uh, so that's awesome. So thanks so much, uh, Kelly, for being here. My pleasure. Great job. All right. Episode's over. If you found value in this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. And if you haven't already yet subscribed, do so now so you don't miss any important topics in the coming week. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please send them my way. I am most responsive on Instagram. That's at jcheese, J-A-E, cheese, like the food, or email me directly at jace, J-A-S-E, at science of sportsrecovery.com. Talk soon.